opportunity to come before your throne of grace. And while we come each and every night and each and every morning uh, when we do gather, Lord, I hope and pray that we never take that privilege for granted, but that we realize that we are coming not into a holy place in this building, but we've come into a holy place before your throne. And there, Lord God, you want to impart your truth to us. And we marvel at the very fact that you use such earthen vessels to impart that word. And yet, Lord, we want to rightly divide your word. We want it to really touch and move in the hearts of people and in our own hearts, Lord. That it would speak to us and encourage us and challenge us to live our lives in godliness, in righteousness, and holiness. So that those of the world would see that you are God and there is no other. And so help us to understand that tonight as we pray for your Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us and upon our hearts and our minds. Lord, that we'll just get it. That we'll get what it says. And help us to understand it for our lives today. We lift up our sister Michelle to you right now and ask you, Father God, to touch her body to strengthen her, Lord God, because she's lost so much strength in the struggle that she faces every day. And uh, with, with uh, the fibromyalgia that she suffers. And, and Lord, we, we pray, Father God, that you'll heal her of this. Grant her God's strength. And to those tonight that are here that are struggling physically, Lord, we, we don't want to forget, Lord, that we can come to you who is... You who are the God that heals. You who are the great physician that, that still heals lives today and still sets us free from those things that, that the enemy may burden us with at times or else we just naturally have fallen into because of the condition of this world. But Lord, you are greater and above all of that. And I'm thankful that we can come to pray for these things and know that you are able and willing to set us free. Lord, heal us, we pray. And heal our sister and heal those that are hurting tonight. And those that we may have on our hearts tonight, that we've come with a burden about, Lord, we lift them up to you by name. Whoever they may be, you hear. The heart of everyone in here that can lift up a name. May you bless them and glorify yourself in all of this as we glorify you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Isaiah chapter 8. Last week we uh, touched a little bit about uh, verses 11 through 15, uh, primarily as uh, we're seeing a prophecy here and throughout the whole chapter 8 dealing with uh, that word being spoken against Syria and Israel, that northern kingdom, you know, the, the, the alliance that was made there against Judah. And uh, yet we've already seen how Judah is also going to be distressed. And a, a lot of that because of Ahaz the king uh, and his uh, unbelief in God. But God gave a prophecy, and I'm going to talk, touch a little bit about it from chapter 7. A sign that would become for us a prophecy for the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
And so, as we talked a little bit about this last section here, uh, last time, and dealing with the fact that even Judah was going to have to come under the, the weight of the attack of Assyria coming, that was going to defeat Syria and Israel, but they were also going to be uh, feeling the, the weight of that uh, particular attack upon themselves. Nonetheless, God has given comfort and is giving comfort, whether we can see it or not. And I think that says a lot about how God deals with us. A lot of times we don't see the comfort that comes. We're actually looking for it and God is always there. You know, God says, I'm not going to leave you. I want to be with you. And the very name Emmanuel that we saw in chapter 7 is the, the name God with us. That means I'm with my people. And the land that is being attacked is actually his land. It's not so much their land, it's his land. Yet he's sticking by them, you see. So as we read in verses 11 through 15 and come back to this, I want to kind of approach it a little differently at just really kind of complementing what we saw last time. But here it says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, Him you shall hallow. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble, they shall fall and be broken, be snared, and be and taken. And so an invasion was coming upon the people of Judah and their king Ahaz, or Ahaz, who was given an opportunity to prove the Lord by asking for a sign from the Lord in order to confirm the word the prophet had spoken concerning their deliverance from the alliance formed against them by Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. He says... I want to give you a sign. Ask for it. Oh no, Lord, I'm not going to tempt the Lord. I'm not going to ask for the sign. And so instead, his, his refusal to trust God by asking Him for such a sign was really hateful to God. It was hateful to God that this very king in the seed of David would refuse to trust Him. And so it prompted the Lord to bring forth his own sign to Ahaz's unbelieving heart. And of course, it's Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, of course, God with us. God with us. And this sign, in its totality, in its fullness would not be fulfilled during Ahaz's reign, nor yet for some time after that, but was to indicate that before this child should come on the scene and grow up into maturity, not only the king of Israel, but also the king of Judah would have ceased to reign. Now we talked a little bit about this last time. The land would be left without a son of David sitting on the throne of Judah or on the throne of Israel. And so with that in mind, I had mentioned last time that the people of Judah were, were tempted to give in to fear and to panic. 
knowing how dangerous it was for them. Because at the time of the prophecy here in chapter 8, the combined armies of Syria and Israel had destroyed much of Judah and were on their way to Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is what God is protecting in all of this. Much of Judah has already been destroyed, but they're on their way to Jerusalem, surrounding Jerusalem to depose the king, Ahaz. Put in their own king, a puppet king. We talked about him before. But instinctively, in times of stress and danger, you see what happens. Men think of confederacies and associations. And so here, he's told, uh, Isaiah is told by God, do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. So in times of danger, notice, men think of these confederacies, these associations of some kind as the best means of preserving the traditions and the conditions which they hold dear. You see, in these conspiracies and confederacies that God was aiming at, they weren't trusting in God, though. They were looking at men. They were looking at others, you know, to kind of come alongside of them. Who were they looking at, Judah? They were looking at Assyria, the enemy, who's going to come and destroy Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. And they're, they're taking delight in that, but what they don't realize is that they're going to be defeated by them too because of Ahaz's sin against God. And so it was in Judah. Men putting these confederacies of men together. And so it is also in the visible church today. So it is also in what is called Christendom. I've often defined this, Christendom, in, in this manner. If I say Christendom, I'm talking about what is called the visible church. What most people around the world would say, well, that's Christianity. And it could be just a whole number of, of sects and a whole number of, of traditions and a whole number of ways, but it's what the world would look at and say, this is Christianity. That's Christendom, the visible church. But the true church... The church that is separated by God, separated unto God, and apart from the world, we call the invisible church. Because God is the one who really knows the hearts of everyone that's in the, the true church. We give evidence of that because we live according to the will of God and according to the ways of God and according to the word of God. So we're true believers if we've received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We have nothing to hide. We're not trying to be invisible. What I'm saying is the world doesn't know. And so in Christendom, the world looks at things and things happen, you know, for example, all down through the ages. The world would say, how could, uh, you know, Christianity go and kill people like in the Crusades? Well, that wasn't Jesus. Jesus didn't organize that confederacy. Jesus didn't organize it that way to go out there and kill people. Do you understand where I'm going with this? You see the picture here. People today think that because there are, you know, large and many cathedrals made, people wearing robes, people wearing crowns on their heads and all kinds of stuff, that this is the church, is it? The emergent church of today comes to mind when I think about this confederacy or these confederacies. We've talked about the emergent church before. 
But the emergent church is the attempt to establish an inclusive ecumenical communion to deal with a postmodern generation, not with absolutes, not with the absolutes of the Bible, but with what they call authenticity. We need to go back to the meditative practices of the 3rd, 4th century, the 16th century. We need to adopt, you know, the burning of candles before icons. And, you know, they don't call them idols, but that's all they are. And we need to be inclusive. We need to quit studying. And, and this was a quote we, we heard not too long ago. We need to quit studying the Bible so much and start telling more stories. Well, folks, that's going to destroy not build up the body of Christ. So when we think, oh, listen, God, God, God needs us to become inclusive because we, we have to reach this postmodern generation. They, they, you know, hey, folks, mo- movements have come, movements have gone, generations have come, generations have gone, but the same problem exists, the sin in the hearts of men from the very beginning. People are born in sin and they need to know that there's a Savior for their souls. But they first have to know that they're in trouble. Movements have come and gone, but the powerful and living Word of God remains sufficient for any and every generation, for any and any movement there is. The bottom line is, that it isn't a matter of coming to God and believing the way you want to believe to know that this is the God that we should worship. Well, I just want to worship God this way. I just want to worship God that way. If it doesn't line up with His Word, we're not worshiping. So that's the point. You see, postmodern, who cares? I don't, I don't like the labels. I mean, sin is sin, folks. People who are without, are without Christ, we were without Christ at one time. We could have called ourselves baby boomers, right? Whatever generation we're from. The greatest generation, who knows? And who cares? I'll tell you what we were. We were sinners who needed the salvation of Jesus Christ by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what we needed. We came to it. We received the salvation of our souls. And guess what? Anybody else can. But oh, listen. Stop teaching the Bible and start telling stories. Oh yeah, that's what I'm going to do. The Bible is still God's Word. The Bible is still more powerful than anything that man can create. Because it changes lives for eternity. We can create the atom, you know, to create atom bombs and kill people. Anybody can kill. But the Word of God saves. And Jesus said, don't, don't fear the people who can kill the body, but fear the one who can take the body and soul into hell. Fear Him. People don't want to hear about hell anymore. Let's not talk about hell. Let's talk about heaven on earth. We're trying to get out of earth. Go to heaven. This earth is self-destructing. If this was mission impossible, it's self-destruct in five minutes, five seconds or whatever it is. And it could. But Jesus said, I've come that, I, that you might have life. I have it more abundantly. You know what that means? Not here. In heaven. That's where our treasures are to be. It's in heaven. We'll store up your treasures here on earth where rust and moth can destroy, where thieves can break in and steal. 
But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy nor neither thieves can break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. The reason why we need to do that is because there is a hell. There is a place for those who have not responded to Jesus Christ. There is a place for those who don't believe in God and don't want to believe in God. The Apostle Paul tells us that people, whether they believe in God or not, or call themselves atheists, hey folks, they still believe. They're just angry with God. They don't want to do what God says. I have no idea why I went this way. Anyway, no, I do. I do have a little bit of an idea. Because you see, in effect, that's confederacies. That's federations of men getting together and saying, oh, let's, let's kind of revamp the way we approach worship. Let's kind of revamp the way we approach, you know, Christianity. Thank you. No, fine. Christianity is going to be fine if we just stay focused on Jesus and the cross. Paul said, I boasted nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 40, verses 7 and 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath, of the, the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of our God stands forever. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15-17, through 17, John, speaking to the church, is saying to them, Don't love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So the Word of God abides forever, and those who do the will of God will abide forever. And this is exactly, when you think about it, what God is trying to tell Ahaz and the people of Judah. About sticking close to the Word of God. And not, de- not trusting in confederacies or conspiracies or threats. Because the only real recourse in a day of evil is to cleave to the Lord Himself with purpose of heart. Clinging to the Lord Himself. No other person, no other people. I mean, yes, we can love one another. Yes, we can together in Christ do great and wonderful things in prayer. But our trust is in God, not in each other. Think about that. Our trust is in the Lord. And no matter what failure may come in, He remains unchanged and unchangeable. God is a never-changing God. He is the same always and has been and will always be. Jesus Christ, it says in the book of Hebrews, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. So why are we trying to change things? Oh, we might change along with the world. Yes, we've become a little more high-tech. Yes, we've become a little bit more technological, as it were. But guess what? The Word stays the same. God is the same. He's still on the throne. Jesus is still the Savior and the Redeemer of the world. And so when we look at Isaiah 8, verse 13, going back to our text, the Lord of hosts, Him you shall hallow. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. I I, I want you to see the King James Version for just a moment. It says, Sanctify the Lord of hosts Himself. Sanctify Him. Set Him apart in your life. Hallow Him above all things. And let Him be your fear. And let Him be your dread. 
We must, in the church of Jesus Christ, in this church in particular, but we must come to grips with the very fact that we need to know what it means to fear the Lord. What it means to tremble in the presence of Almighty God. And what Isaiah is saying to the people is dare to treat God as God. Folks, do we fear God? Do we fear Him for who He is? We can only truly fear Him if we know Him. So we must come to know Him first. When you truly get to know the Creator of the universe... Yes, He's a God of mercy. Yes, He's a God of grace. Yes, He is, he is love. But what did we learn back in chapter 6? He's holy, holy, holy. He's never called love, love, love. He's never called mercy, mercy, mercy. He's never called grace, grace, grace. It never says He's giving, giving, giving. Although He's all of those things. But it says, holy, holy, holy. Dare to treat God as God. Don't respond to life in a way that makes God look helpless and weak and worthless. I know that there's one side of the church, you know, that tries to get people to say, listen, you know, you're... You need a, you're a king's kid and you need to, you know, take everything that's yours because God's given it to you and all that. And that's kind of pushing, you know, one extreme there. But in fact, we need to live our lives like God is who He is. That God is awesome in all of His ways. That God is powerful in all of His ways. That God is all-knowing and all-seeing and all-hearing and, 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 all and He's just all-everything all because He's God and we're not. But we're to never to live our lives in a way that makes God look helpless. God look weak and worthless. Living emotionally as if God were not really our Savior is simply practical atheism. And there's too much of that in the church today. Because people will go to church week in, week out, day in, day out, and they sing the songs and they pray the prayer and they and they do all sorts of things and they leave no closer to the to the God that created them and the God that said I am with you always they're no closer to him they're just living a practical atheism they believe but do they truly believe do they trust you see believing and trusting believing and trusting come on it's got to be one thing not two different things as a matter of fact James points it out this way in his in his letter he says, even the demons believe and they tremble. How come we're not trembling? The demons aren't even saved. <laughs> and we say we are. Well, we better tremble then in the presence of a holy God. See, they have a belief in God. But their belief only comes to, a, 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 to an understanding. To a level of ascent. They've, they've ascended to that level of knowing that there is a God. But you know what? They don't believe in Him like we are to believe in Him and to trust Him. They don't trust God. They're not saved. They're going to perish. The Bible, the Bible tells us that the devil and the demons of hell are going to perish. Or the demons that followed, the one-third that followed Him out of, uh, out of heaven. 
They'll perish. Hell was made for the devil and his angels, by the way. It wasn't made for us. So why do we want to go there? Why does anybody want to go there? If God is God, He is all that finally matters. Amen? If God is God, He is all that matters. The remnant... The remnant, and I'll mention the remnant a lot in the book of Isaiah, but the remnant, the true believer, the true, the ones that, you know, it's it's not a big number. But the remnant respects and reveres God enough to live that way. The true believer in God and in Jesus Christ respects and reveres God enough to live that way. Are you living that way? In where God is God. And we need to treat God as God by the way we live. So when God is given His rightful place, what will He be for us? He will be a sanctuary. When God is given His rightful place, He will be as a sanctuary to those who put their trust in Him. Look at verse 14. He will be as a sanctuary. Stop there. When we treat Him and give Him His rightful place, He'll be a sanctuary for us. We can run to Him and we should run to Him. But notice the next part. But a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So he's either going to be a sanctuary or he's going to be a snare. And how we treat God, listen to me carefully, how we treat God determines how we experience God either as a sanctuary or as a snare. Every one of us will experience God one way or the other. If we take Him into account as God, we will enter His sanctuary and experience His presence. Those of us that have come to know Christ and and come to know that beautiful relationship and fellowship with Jesus Christ, know that experience. Because we can run to Him as our sanctuary, as our refuge, as our strength, as our ever-present help in time of trouble. So if we take Him into account as God, we will enter His sanctuary and experience His presence. But if other things compel us, listen, if other things compel us, let's face it, God isn't going away. God isn't going away, but we'll end up colliding with Him and tripping over Him as a snare. Just because we turn our backs on God doesn't mean He's going to go away. Because any way we turn from Him, He's going to be in front of us. Because we can't escape God. He's too big. The problem is with some people in the church, He's too small. And their problems are big. Or their desires are big. Or their fears are big. But our God is not small. When we turn to Him and trust Him, man, He's, he's awesome. I know I've said this too many times. You know, I've, I'm like a parrot. You know, I repeat things all the time. But I don't care. I want you to get this picture. I don't like to use the word awesome except for God because you know what? That's about the way it is. God is awesome. Awesome. And we're not. But I tell you what, when God is awesome in our hearts, in our minds, 
Our problems are little, aren't they now? Whereas our problems were big before and our fears were big and our desires were big and our lusts were big. You know what now? If God is awesome, we can't see those other things. Why? Because He takes our attention. Now everything else is minuscule, minute, mini. Listen to the words of Jesus. In Matthew 21. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. He's, of course, he's speaking to scribes and Pharisees and the chief priests. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. The very Messiah of Israel came to them and they missed it. They saw him as small. Their problems and their fears were so much bigger. They feared the multitudes because the multitudes took him as a prophet. And so the words found in verse 14 of our text are applied definitely to our Lord in the New Testament. For when He, the long-looked-for Messiah, came in lowly grace, the nation stumbled over Him as over a stumbling stone. And so was broken and scattered as predicted in verse 15. Look at verse 15. And many among them shall stumble, they shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. That happened then, but it also happened after Jesus came the first time. Were they not broken in A.D. 70? Were they not scattered and ensnared in many cases? And we know that this, that we know that Jesus is this stone of stumbling and rock of offense. Peter himself takes this in part of his letter in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 6 says, Therefore it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore to you who believe, he is a, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, notice the, the contrast here. To those who believe, He's precious to those who are disobedient. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. They're going to be stumbling all over him. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense from our very text, Peter quotes. And notice what he says at the very end. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. They were appointed to God's word, but they stumbled over it because they didn't believe it. And therefore became disobedient to it. The reason why people are disobedient to the Word of God is because they don't believe it. Think about that for a moment. What did Peter say in verse 7? Therefore to you who believe, He is precious. But to those who are, does he say 
those who are unbelievers? No, he says to those who are disobedient. And I have to say that. Why? Because a disobedient person is one who doesn't believe. And this is the same idea behind the statement of Simeon when he held the child Jesus in the book of Luke. The gospel is recorded in Luke chapter 2. Verse 34 says, Then Simeon blessed them, Mary and Joseph and the child, and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined. Notice, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Jesus, a stumbling stone in a rock of offense. How many people are still offended by Jesus today? In our own country, a country founded on the principles of, of, of the Scriptures. The very foundation of the, of, of the United States of America was Scripture. And so what do we have people doing? The minority of the country is offended by the name of Jesus. Got to take the Jesus. You can't pray in the name of Jesus. Oh, you can't put up a cross here. You can't do this. You can't do... Who said we can't do it? You bunch of cowards. That's all you are. You can't deal with the name of Jesus because of how powerful He is. Because of who He is and what He's done. I will not be ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. And I pray that our country will come to grips with that. And I'm not telling atheists to, you know, you don't like it here, get out. No, stay here and get saved. That's, that's all I can tell them. But one thing for sure, if you're offended, you're offended. But you know what? As far as I know, we've been given the freedom to name the name of Christ. And you won't shut me up. And if the laws change, if someday they say you can't preach anymore, good. I'll buy me the biggest microphone and the biggest speaker I can and I'll still preach the gospel. And throw me in jail, I'll do it in there too. Why? Because the Bible says so and I want to be obedient to the Lord. You see, we have a freedom here that a lot of people don't understand. How many of our brothers and sisters in other countries where they do kill you for the name of Christ? Should we not be as faithful in a country where we can preach the gospel? And by the way, we can. People don't like it. You know, go join the ACLU. But better, open your eyes and realize that you're a sinner. And whether you want to believe it or not, there is a God. And He doesn't want you to perish eternally. So I'm not one of these love it or leave, you know, America love it or leave it kind of guys. No, I'm one of these guys, hey America, you know what? Jesus came for you. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In our day and time, many people dismiss the gospel as irrelevant. They stumble, they fall, and they're broken. But grace awakens the remnant of believers 
to a trembling faith. There's that word again. I said fear and trembling earlier. But grace awakens the remnant, the believer, to a trembling faith. Listen to Psalm 2, verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and following says, Therefore, my beloved, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. (laughs) For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and and disputing. I I wanted to keep reading here because sometimes we need to learn that. We're pretty good at complaining and disputing. I think we, we, we in this country have made it an art form. Complaining and disputing. That's why there's so many complaint departments now everywhere you go. Because everybody just figures there's just going to be a lot of people complaining and disputing. But to us, he says, do all things without complaining and disputing. That you may become blameless and harmless. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Rejoice with trembling. God is a holy God. What we find in the next section of Isaiah chapter 8 is that the remnant is set apart by the truth of God's word. Look at verses 16 through 18 now. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among the disciples, and I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of, the, of Jacob, and I will hope in him. I will wait on the Lord. Folks, they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall run with wings as eagles. They shall walk and not, you know, run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Waiting on the Lord. Have we done that? Are we doing that? He says, And I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me, We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. It is obvious that God's word was not valued in the days of Ahaz. And so when Isaiah says, bind up the testimony, seal the law among the disciples, he is saying in effect, preserve this neglected wisdom for a later generation who will listen. Wow. That's heavy. To those who are willing to be taught the word of God, the word becomes increasingly precious as the days grow darker. And that's why he says what he says. Bind up the testimony and seal the law among my disciples. And wait on the Lord who hides his face. When the Apostle Paul predicted the coming apostasy in the Ephesian church, this is what he said, and let me give you a little bit of a a rundown of that apostasy. He says in Acts 20, verse 28, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. There's the price. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, he says, and this is what I want you to see. So now, brethren, I commend to you, or I'm sorry, I commend you to God and what? To the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He committed them to the word of his grace. This is what Isaiah was doing to the remnant of believers. They preserve this wisdom for a generation that will listen. And there in verse 17, and I'm going to kind of speed this up because I've kind of taken a little liberty here with some things. But in verse 17, we hear the voice of him who takes the place of dependence upon God. Listen to this. Is this you? Are you willing to say this? And I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Are you willing to say that? I will wait on the Lord even though his face is turned from the house of of Judah. You see, the Lord may seem to be indifferent to the trials His people are passing through, but that isn't really so here. Because His face may be hidden, but His heart is ever towards them. His face might be hidden. How many times do we think, God's not here, God, where are you? I've prayed, I've prayed, I've prayed, but He's right there. He hasn't left you. You need to wait on Him. And you need to hope in Him, no matter what you see. His heart is ever towards His people. Think of Micah chapter 7 verses 18 and 19. I mean, you read the book of Micah and you realize, man, God is going to judge these people, but listen to what it says. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of His heritage? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Aren't you thankful for that? If Israel will one day be thankful for that, how much more us who know that that's what God has done for us? And so then in verse 18... Isaiah and his family were called then to be a testimony and a witness to all of Israel. Look at verse 18. It says, Here am I, Isaiah, here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. Remember the two kids? I'll give you their names in just a minute. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who who dwells in Mount Zion. Isaiah had been called to prophesy and to use his children in his prophetic messages. So he declares this, Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. It's as if he's saying this. He says, look at us. We're the message. We are the message to you. And so remember that the name, and here's the name of the, the last name that we learn. I'll give you the last name first. Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which means speed to the spoil, hurry to the plunder, which is what was happening with Assyria coming to take them. This spoke of the coming attack on Syria, Israel, and Judah by Assyria. And then the name Shear Yashub, which is the other son, the first son that we met. The name Shear Yashub means a remnant shall return. And so this speaks of the restoration that God would eventually bring. Here's the message, you see. 
through his children and himself. Because even the name Isaiah, what does it mean? Salvation is of the Lord. And this refers to the attitude and the hope that Judah needed to have. They needed to know that salvation was only in their God. And so it was in the very name of the prophet. So the prophet and his sons, was, their names were giving the message. And we are also the children of God. And we are His message. Did you know that? We are the children of God and we are the message of God. Paul quotes this passage here that we just read, uh, the last part there uh, when he talks about uh, who, uh, my children you know, whom the Lord has given me and all that. Uh, you know, he uses that uh, in, in, in uh, communicating this very truth in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 11 through 13. Paul says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, Notice, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will sing praise to you. And again, notice here, I will put my trust in him. And here it is, and again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. So just as Isaiah's children were living witnesses of the truth of God's word, so are we as God's children. And there, in Hebrews, it says, you know, Paul is using that very same statement. He says, we are witnesses of God unto people. And so the remainder of the chapter, then, gives us a solemn warning against what is now known as spiritualism, or any form of necromancy, which means literally communicating with the dead. Notice what it says in verse 19 and following. And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? There's the wisdom right there in the very statement. Should not a people seek their God? In other words, not those weirdos. Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, that's what he says. in complete opposition to what what people were trying to do, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God, and they'll look upward, and then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom and anguish, and they will be driven into darkness." That is, the wizards and the mediums as well as those who listen to them. Because during those difficult days, the people were looking for answers. They wanted to know what was up ahead for the nation. They looked for advice from people who talked with demonic spirits or or who claimed that they talked to the dead. Is that not happening today? Oh, so many people are saying, oh, you know, I just, oh, I can't, I've got to go talk to my, you know, beloved one that left me years ago and I need to go find somebody who, you know, bring them up in a seance and will I just need to know what, what you know, isn't that so foolish? They're dead! What wisdom can you get from a dead person? The only wisdom that we need and the only wisdom that we can find from somebody who died is to talk to the one who rose again from the dead. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, they, but even back then, they probably would have called the psychic hotlines if they had them. 
There was a time, you know, there was a time when, you know, people, you know, you'd see commercials and they'd say, you know, call your psychic hotline, you know, and you'll get to find out, you know, the future and all of these kind of horoscopes and, and whatnot. They're still in the newspapers, too. Bunch of dumb stuff, you know. I read them from time to time and say, that's dumb. You know, people live their lives this way. They'll get up in the morning, they read it and say, oh, I can't go to work today. Good, then you're fired. Vamanos. But these were all practices condemned in the Scriptures. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9. When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of the nations, of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. That was offering to the god Molech. Or one who practices witchcraft. Or a soothsayer. Or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer. Or one who conjures spells. Or a medium. Or a spiritist. Or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things. Folks, listen carefully. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you will dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. A living God was among them. He says, listen to me. Come to me. I'll grant you wisdom. I'll show you the way to go. I'll be with you. I'll be with you through the flood. I'll get you through the flood. I'll, get, I'll be with you through the fire. How many times have we seen that happen? Through floods and fires and famines and storms and everything else, God has gotten His people through. But as soon as man begins to, uh, man begins to look at uh, you know, the way the world does things, what happens? It's all deception. Leviticus 20 verse 27 says, A man or a woman who is a medium or who has familiar spirits, shall surely be put to death. This was the Old Testament, of course. But they says, they shall stone them with stones, their blood shall be upon them. Why? Because they led God's people astray. And they would suffer for it. And even though we do not stone people today, God still knows who's going around as a spiritist or as a, you know, one of those weirdos. And so in verse 20, the people are being asked, do you want answers from God? Then get into His Word. In other words, run to the truth, to the law, and to the testimony. Run to the truth. Isaiah's people had the truth, but they didn't have value, uh, or they didn't value it, I should say, as their guide for life. They had the truth, but they didn't value it. Why? Because there was no light in them. And then there was no light in the, me- in the mediums and the spiritists. I mean, think about this. You know, you, you, you look at TV and you look at the way they portray, you know, these spiritists and stuff. Oh, you know, they're always in a dark room with a glowing ball, you know, ball, you know. Oh, look, you can see this. It's always in the dark. Of course it is. Why? Because there's no light in them. Just enough light so they can cover up, you know, the seances with the, you know, the wires and the, ooh, you know, and here comes the... The word for light, by the way, here is actually the word for dawn. The first light after a night of darkness. There was no dawning in them. In other words, 
There is no mourning in them. That means that when the day dawns for the eternal blessing of the redeemed, there will be outer darkness for those who spurned the light of truth only to be misled by falsehood. And so folks, if there is a disagreement between God's word and the word of a messenger of that sort, it isn't hard to figure out who is wrong. The messenger is wrong. The word judges the messenger. The messenger doesn't judge the word. So let's conclude in verse 21, verse 22. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry, that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. These spiritists and these mediums and those who consult with them will eventually be judged by God. In their distress they will look up to God and they'll curse Him and to look to the earth where they will face distress and then be thrust into darkness. Ironically, those who seek to consult the dead will be forced to join Him. And folks, today it's, it's no different. How many people who, who claim to believe that, they have, that there is no God, you know, they, they live this way. They just live in darkness. They have no real light. One of the great uh, atheists of all time, his name was Voltaire, France, hated Christianity, hated the cross, hated anything to do with God. One day said in a very proud way that everything that he was doing in his philosophy and in his uh, development of his own uh, humanistic philosophy was going to eventually destroy the Bible and destroy Christianity for good. And what's ironic about that story is that, of course, when Voltaire died, after Voltaire died, I should say, his house became a publishing house for the Bible. And out of his house... Thousands of copies of the Bible went forth. What what an irony. God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? So you say you're going to destroy me and my word? Right out of your own house, I'll send forth my word. And he did. Let me leave you with these words of the Lord Jesus and the words of the Apostle Paul. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 19, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. How clear that is. We are people of the light, not of darkness. And lastly, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, 
And notice verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Jesus is either your sanctuary or he is your snare. Jesus is either your sanctuary or he is your Stone of stumbling and rock of offense. I hope and pray that you have made him your sanctuary. That the Lord himself is your refuge and strength and your ever-present help in time of need. God's word, unchangeable, faithful and just like God and Christ the same yesterday today and forever shall we pray